Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, I'm Libby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, October 27th, 2023. It looks like we're going to have a beautiful weekend. Today, the highs will be in the low 70s, and it will dip down into the 50s tonight. On Saturday, there'll be plenty of sunshine with high in the 70s again. Sunday will be a little bit cooler with clouds. The highs will only reach into the high 50s. And now, by special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we present the lottery numbers. The midday drawing of Thursday's numbers game, we have numbers 0, 4, 4, and 7. For the evening drawing that day, we have numbers 8, 3, 4, and 8. Thursday's mass cash drawing numbers were 21, 22, 24, 29, and 33. The Powerball drawing on Wednesday brought numbers 25, 27, 41, 53, 68, and the extra ball of number 2. And finally, for Mega Millions, we have a drawing on Tuesday with numbers 16, 20, 30, 54, 59, and the extra ball of number 7. The lead story on page one of today's newspaper is headlined, Perry Murder Trial. Jurors hear details from night of Mashpee slaying by Walker Armstrong of the Cape Cod Times. The one-time girlfriend of a Mashpee man charged with killing his father in November 2017 described to a Barnstable Superior Court jury on Wednesday the events she said she witnessed the night of the slaying. This is the second week of the trial of Eli Perry. Paige Malone, age 35, said she was at 37 Riverside Road the night Eli Perry is alleged to have killed his father, Raymond Perry, following a dispute in the father's home. She said Raymond Perry was bleeding from his neck while Eli stood nearby holding a knife in his right hand. Raymond Perry was hunched over and making noises, gurgling noises, Malone said. At the time, I couldn't really understand, even though I saw blood everywhere. I couldn't understand really what was going on. While cross-examined by Perry's lawyer, Eduardo Masferrer, Malone admitted she was addicted to heroin, Adderall, and benzodiazepines at the time, calling into question her memory of events. She said she's been sober for five years. Malone said she and Eli Perry were living in a small shed on the father's property where they would use drugs. She said Raymond Perry was unhappy about them living there. Malone said she heard Eli Perry say, Tonight's the night, before leaving the small shed and starting off toward his father's house. On the night of the kill, but Malone later admitted to Masferrer she couldn't say with 100% certainty that Eli Perry had actually used those words that night. When you were speaking to the police in June 2018, they asked you about the statements that Eli had said in the shed, Masferrer said. You told them once that he didn't say anything. You even told them twice that he didn't say anything about his dad. 
Malone testified under a cooperation agreement, which allowed her to avoid a first-degree murder charge. Instead, she pleaded guilty in March 2019 to being an accessory after the fact to murder, misleading police, and unlawful disposal of a human body. She was sentenced to five to seven years in prison, followed by three years of probation. Superior Court Judge Mark Gildea told the jury that the cooperation agreement should be taken into account when assessing Malone's credibility. You should take into consideration that such a witness, who has been promised some benefit, may have been induced her to testify, Gildea said. A defendant cannot be convicted solely on the testimony of a person granted such a benefit. During his opening statement on October 18th, Masfer told jurors that Eli Perry did not intend to kill his father. What happened to Raymond Perry? Raymond Perry was reported missing on December 1, 2017, but friends and family reportedly had not been in touch with him since November 26th, according to court records. Several days later, on December 18th, investigators found Perry's body buried under a mulch pile near a cranberry bog at Old Forge Farm in Plymouth. His hands and feet were bound with zip ties, and he was covered with a rug that authorities determined came from his home in Mashpee. The cause of death was said to be a combination of three incisions to the neck and blunt force trauma to the head. After disposing of Raymond Perry's body, court records and testimony show Eli Perry and Malone returned to the father's house and attempted to hide evidence of the slaying by painting the walls and laying new flooring. In her testimony, Malone said she did not aid in the killing of Raymond Perry and that Eli Perry told her she had to help him dispose of the body. The two were later arrested and charged in February 2018. Barnstable District Court is Temporarily Closing by Rashik Tabusa Mujib of the Cape Cod Times. Barnstable County First District Court will conduct business from a handful of new locations next month, as the courthouse closes for approximately four weeks to deal with flood damage. On August 8th, heavy rainfall damaged the courthouse at 3195 Main Street in Barnstable, according to Elizabeth Albert, the county administrator. To allow work crews to repair the building, the courthouse will close November 13th. Orleans 2nd District Court on Rock Harbor Road in Orleans was also damaged. The Barnstable District Court Clerk's Office will operate from trailers placed next to the Superior Court building in the same court complex and will use a courtroom in that building, according to an announcement posted on the trial court's website. The existing telephone numbers and address can be used since calls will be forwarded and mail picked up. The Barnstable session of the Southeast Housing Court has been relocated to the Plymouth Courthouse on Obery Street in Plymouth. This session is conducted on the second and fourth Wednesday of the month. While the Barnstable County Juvenile Court will conduct its business at the Orleans District Court on Rock Harbor Road in Orleans, the Law Library will conduct operations in the Plymouth Law Library. The existing phone numbers will be used for both the Juvenile Court and the Law Library. New Budget Practices Recognized by Heather McCarran of the Cape Cod Times About five years after Brewster weathered a financial storm during a previous administration, the town has been singled out for its excellent budget planning, accounting, and communications about finances with the community. 
The town was just recognized with a Government Finance Officers Association Distinguished Budget Presentation Award for its fiscal 2024 budget adopted in the spring. It's a prestigious award that's given out nationally to applicants meeting stringent criteria. And it's particularly good news for taxpayers because it shows the strength of the town's financial planning and can only serve to back up an already stellar bond rating and save the town money. The town's bond rating is based on a variety of factors, including the strength of a community's finance team, financial policies, and budgetary performance. This award reflects Brewster's strengths in all of these areas, said town manager Peter Lombardi. As an example, he noted, the last time town issued long-term debt to buy the former Cape Cod Sea Camps properties in the fall of 2021, Brewster received a top AAA bond rating. We expect that this award will help ensure we retain that highest rating, which helps secure the lowest possible interest rates and saves taxpayers money on large capital projects, Lombardi said. Getting recognized by the Government Finance Officers Association is no small feat. In order to attain this designation, the budget has to be rated proficient as a policy document, a financial plan, an operations guide, and a communications device, said Lombardi. Budgets have to meet all 14 mandatory criteria across these four categories in order to win the award. Last year, about 40 of the state's 351 towns and cities received the award, only two of which were towns with populations smaller than Brewster, he noted. This year was the first time Brewster applied for the award. Over the past couple years, town leadership has prioritized improving the ways in which we communicate information about town finances and taxes to our residents, Lombardi explained. Last year, we launched an online budget platform, and we transitioned our five-year capital improvement plan to this platform earlier this year. Meeting these national best practices is the culmination of those efforts. The town's leaders view the award as a significant achievement, made all the more meaningful after the financial turmoil around 2016 to 2018, when audit reports highlighted several budgeting problems. Two reports, one from the town's auditor for fiscal 2017, and another from the Abrahams Group, an auditing firm hired by the town for fiscal 2018, found several issues that resulted in overspending and use of money without town meeting approval. The current leadership has put all of that behind the town. Lombardi declined to comment on those events that happened before his tenure, emphasizing, For the past four and a half years, our focus has been on doing what's best for the organization and the community in terms of developing sustainable and transparent budgets. We have an outstanding finance team who's proud of our work together. This award affirms that we're committed to identifying and implementing best practices in municipal finance, he said. Current finance director Mimi Bernardo said in a statement that earning the recognition validates that the town of Brewster maintains high budgeting and financial reporting standards aligned with its strategic goals. This award affirms Brewster's commitment to producing transparent and exceptional financial reports, she said. Lombardi gave credit and thanks to the town's entire finance team, especially Bernardo and assistant town manager Donna Kalanick, for their outstanding efforts in developing budget information 
that helps residents better understand how their tax dollars support town services and programs. The Distinguished Budget Presentation Award was established in 1984 to encourage and assist state and local governments to prepare budget documents of the very highest quality that reflect both the guidelines established by the National Advisory Council on State and Local Budgeting and the GFOA's best practices on budgeting, and then to recognize individual governments that succeed in achieving that goal, the awarding organization states on its website. You can look at the Brewster budget materials by visiting the website of BrewsterMass.gov. Born Town Meeting to Vote Again on Recreational Marijuana Sales by Susan Vaughn, special to the Cape Cod Times. For the fifth time in recent years, residents at Bourne Special Town Meeting on November 6th are faced with articles that would permit the sale of recreational marijuana or maintain an existing ban. The meeting warrant contains 15 articles, 12 of which deal with funding or other routine business. Article 15, which would lift the ban and allow recreational marijuana sales, was submitted by citizen petition by Lori Howe and her husband Kevin Howe of Bourne who co-own Cape Way Cannabis in Carver. Kevin Howe called the passage of Article 15 a matter of freedom of choice for residents, since the sale of recreational marijuana is legal in Massachusetts. He also said 60% of the customers at the Carver store are over 50, many of them using marijuana for pain and sleep issues. The Carver customers include a number from Bourne. They shouldn't have to leave town, Howe said. None of the marijuana stores in surrounding towns have had any problems, he said, and he believes those opposing the shops are spreading misinformation. The petitioners are urging supporters to attend the town meeting and vote, Howe said. Out of the 15 towns on Cape Cod, seven prohibit the sale of cannabis. In total, 17 medical and recreational dispensaries are on the Cape and Islands, according to the Cannabis Control Commission. What is the history of marijuana sales in Bourne? A vote in March 2018 permitted recreational marijuana sales, but a second vote that year passed the current ban that was upheld again in 2019. In May, overturning the ban failed by one vote, 249 to 248. A simple majority is needed to pass. The Select Board and Finance Committee are split on the subject but ended up recommending approval of Article 15. The Finance Committee vote was 4-3 to three with one abstention, and the Select Board voted 2-1 to one with two abstentions. In Article 13, the Planning Board has proposed a zoning bylaw that creates a special zone in which sales of medical marijuana and recreational marijuana are permitted. The district would include North Sagamore, South Sagamore, Downtown Buzzards Bay, and MacArthur Boulevard. Main Street is not included. The Planning Board will serve as the Site Plan Review and Special Permit Granting Authority under the Zoning Bylaw. That article requires a two-thirds majority to pass. Anti-Marijuana Advocacy Group, Born Alliance, is sponsoring Article 14 to adopt a zoning bylaw ban to prohibit all non-medical marijuana establishments. Approval would make future efforts to lift the ban on marijuana shops more difficult in the future, according to the explanation in the warrant. The measure needs a two-thirds vote to pass. 
Some opponents, including select board member Anne-Marie Saronian, fear lifting the ban would create a bad climate for children. The town meeting warrant specifies that after the first 12 articles are dispensed with, Article 15 will be taken up first and Article 13 immediately afterward. Article 14 will be taken up immediately after Article 13, regardless of the order drawn in the lottery. Article 13 could still be passed if Article 15 fails and would only take effect if the prohibition is repealed in the future, according to an opinion by Town Council Brian F. Bertram. What is a town meeting? Town meeting is both an event and an entity, according to the Secretary of the Commonwealth's website. As an event, it is a gathering of a town's eligible voters and is referred to as the town meeting. As an entity, it is the legislative body for towns in Massachusetts and is referred to simply as town meeting. Thirteen of the 15 Cape Cod towns, including Bourne, have open town meetings, meaning all voters who live in that town may vote on all matters. Falmouth has a representative town meeting, where all voters elect town meeting members who then vote on all town meeting matters. The town of Barnstable is governed by an elected town council rather than by a town meeting. The Bourne Town Meeting is at 7 p.m. on November 6th at the Auditorium of Bourne High School on Waterhouse Road. The Town Meeting Warrant can be found on the opening page of the town's website, townofbourne.com. Climate Chief Calls for a Climate Service Corps for Young People by Sam Drysdale of the Statehouse News Service. Dateline, Boston. Massachusetts needs to shift from an era of statewide planning for climate policy to the key details of implementing it, according to a new report from the state's top climate official, which includes sweeping recommendations to accelerate the state's progress toward its emissions reduction goals. Climate Chief Melissa Hoffer recommends some more drastic measures, such as having Massport look at limiting the amount of short-hop flights in and out of Bay State airports to reduce aviation emissions, decarbonizing new public school construction, and developing a climate service corps to prepare young people for jobs in clean energy and climate resilience. One of the main pillars of Hoffer's report, released Wednesday morning, is a call for an economic analysis of the state investment needed to achieve greenhouse gas emission reductions mandated by the Clean Energy and Climate Plan which includes the statutorily required target that Massachusetts be net zero by 2050. State officials have made some effort to move toward these goals, but there is no comprehensive analysis of an important aspect of the journey, how much decarbonization will actually cost. Though there's no Massachusetts-specific estimate, the report says the cost to decarbonize the total U.S. economy by 2050 may be in the range of 25 to $30 trillion. Hoffer says federal funding from a handful of new laws, such as the Inflation Reduction Act and CHIPS and Science Act, could contribute somewhere in the range of about 8 to 30% of required decarbonization spending, meaning 70 to 92% will need to be financed by other means. 
She recommends convening the Executive Office of Administration and Finance, Climate Office, Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs, and MassDOT and the MBTA to complete this analysis by the end of 2024. The Climate Chief's 86-page report takes a step toward fulfilling one of Governor Maura Healey's early promises in office. Healey signed an executive order on her second day on the job to create Hoffer's position and tasked her with analyzing the state's executive offices and recommending ways to bring their operations more in line with the state's climate goals. The plan represents suggestions that Hoffer is making to the administration, and it's unclear which ideas Healy may try to implement administratively and which ones might require legislative proposal. In addition to getting a handle on the overall price to decarbonize the state, Hoffer strongly discourages any state spending that would undermine climate policy progress. The Climate Office said it does not support new natural gas infrastructure, though necessary repairs may need to be made while residents transition to cleaner energy. To help facilitate that transition, Hoffer recommends major reforms to MassSave, a collaborative of Massachusetts natural gas and electric utility providers meant to increase energy efficiency in residents' homes and save people money through tools such as rebates. The MassSave program currently is ministered by electric and gas utilities. It's become increasingly clear, particularly in light of the successes of sister state entities, Efficiency Maine and Efficiency Vermont, that under the current statutory framework, the MassSave program is failing to take the steps necessary to achieve, achieve the transformative levels of building decarbonization required, the report says. It does not recommend removing electric and gas utility companies from the helm, but says the program administrators are not directly subject to state building decarbonization goals. As it is currently structured, the Climate Office wrote, MassSave is more focused on supporting cost savings from energy efficiency than on decarbonization. Hoffer recommends that a handful of executive offices and state departments convene to articulate a vision for a future framework for the program. And moving away from fossil fuels, the report also calls on the Massachusetts Port Authority and the Department of Transportation to develop a plan to reduce aviation emissions, including consideration of alternative fuels and reduced availability of certain short-hop flights where rail exists as an alternative. The trip between Boston and New York, where there's an Amtrak alternative, would fall under this definition of short-hop flights. Massport has a plan to reach net zero by 2031 for emissions within its direct control. And Hoffer's report encourages the agency to pursue chances to pilot sustainable aviation fuel technology. The plan also outlines goals to build a clean energy workforce. The recommended Climate Service Corps would provide volunteer opportunities and youth-focused programs, preparing them for good-paying jobs in clean energy and climate resilience. The report says there is strong interest from community colleges and that the Corps would also offer pre-apprenticeship opportunities for trades that contribute to fighting climate change. The Massachusetts clean energy workforce will need to grow by an additional 29,700 full-time equivalent workers to meet the Commonwealth's 2030 
greenhouse gas emissions reduction mandates, the report says, in a section calling for the development of a new cross-agency plan for clean energy workforce development. Massachusetts Competitive Partnership Chief Operating Officer Rebecca Davis said, there's a real opportunity for the state to simultaneously meet climate goals and invest in workers and the economy. How can we strategically and collaboratively work across sectors to build up this clean tech ecosystem or the climate innovation economy? There's tremendous opportunity there, Davis said. It's going to take really a cross-sectoral effort to achieve that. But I think that kind of given what the core elements are, Massachusetts' strengths is our innovation economy, strong business partners, and the universities that we have. In the first quarter of 2024, the Climate Office plans to convene interested private sector stakeholders to establish a corporate climate challenge for voluntary commitments to reduce certain emissions. Paul Craney, spokesman for the Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance, said Wednesday morning that more control should be given to the private sector. This administration and the previous administration gives certain energy industries the green light to produce energy, while others are not allowed to. That's talking about fossil fuels, natural gas, home heating oil, combustion engines. Those are all things that are being forced out of the market by Governor Healy and many others, Craney said. He continued, What we fear is the end result is going to be less options for consumers and extremely high costs. And that's completely unsustainable if we want to be economically competitive with other states. The report calls for some immediate action on Hoffer's goals. The administration will review all executive office grants in the first half of 2024 to ensure they line up with the state's environmental targets, it says. And the plan tasks Hoffer's office and the Executive Office of Administration and Finance to come up with a plan to evaluate all proposed capital projects in terms of the climate mandates by January 15, 2024 with hopes of using the new standards during the fiscal year 2025 capital improvement plan process. In recent years, climate activists have ramped up advocacy around greenhouse gas emissions associated with manufacturing, transportation, installation and maintenance of building and infrastructure materials, which has been estimated to account for between 11 and 23% of annual global emissions. Hoffer's report calls for the Massachusetts School Building Authority to move toward a requirement that all new school buildings be decarbonized using electric power for building systems rather than fossil fuels, and to come up with a comprehensive plan for existing public schools to reduce emissions. In April, Education Secretary Pactor Tutwiler announced the creation of a new clean energy innovation career pathway to allow high school students to access opportunities in the energy sector. But the new report takes this education initiative a step further. Hoffer suggests that the administration work with the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education to support a K-12 climate education curriculum. Too few school districts currently have a basic public school curriculum to teach children about climate change, what it is, the causes and projected impacts, and what can be done to avoid more dangerous levels of warming. Numerous stakeholders, including students themselves, 
have called for such a curriculum to be offered, the plan says. Additionally, the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs is planning a large-scale multimedia public education campaign on climate issues. Another core element of Hoffer's recommendations is developing a comprehensive coastal resilience plan, which would have public authority on programs and regulatory efforts meant to address the coastal impacts of climate change. The plan, led by the Office of Coastal Zone Management, would have a similar function as the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority in overseeing coastal resources with specific authority to prevent and mitigate threats to public safety, property, and the environment from coastal erosion, flooding, and storm damage. There is complexity with the coast, so the recommendation for there to be one authority that can think and act across that complexity like Boston has both a coast and a harbor and three rivers that meet there, as well as old infrastructure, where simply rainwater flooding is a challenge. So that intersection of challenges needs to be met with an intersection of solutions, said Allison Bowden, interim Massachusetts director at the Nature Conservancy and an ecologist with a focus on the coast. There are all kinds of disciplines. There are river people and coast people and ocean people and stormwater people, and we need those people working together. Though published Wednesday, the climate plan has been held up in Healy's office since July. The executive order that created Hoffer's position called for the report to be handed to the governor within 180 days, which was July 5th. As of July 7th, the governor's team said the report had been delivered to Healy, but was still being finalized, and that they planned to publish it within a few weeks. We've reached the halfway point of our program today, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of our broadcast, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary is for Frank S. Edmonds, Dateline, West Harwich. Frank Edmonds, age 71, passed away peacefully on October 23rd at home after a brief illness. Married to Maria de Fatima Lessa Nunes many years, he was the son of the late Edward James and Sylvia Snow Edmonds and is survived by his spouse, two sisters, and the sons of his late sister. Frank, a lifelong Cape Cotter, attended Cape schools, graduated from DY in 1970, and then trained as a mechanic in Detroit as a member of the inaugural MoTeC Automotive Tech Institute class. He was first employed by Acme Laundry, and then, until he retired in May, for Cape Cod Corporate Linen Services, where his mechanical insight and troubleshooting skills were valued plant-wide. Frank was known throughout the Cape for his unique sense of humor in combination with a quirky sense of justice but also for his generosity toward those less fortunate, whether two- or four-footed. Some of his happiest hours, however, were spent pursuing and then repairing and restoring the many found objects that followed him home. At his request, no services are planned. For an online guest book, please visit the website of Chapman Funeral. Personal correspondence to the family may be addressed in care of Vera Murphy, P.O. Box 86 in Brewster. For those who wish to honor Frank's memory, donations to the Family Pantry of Cape Cod on Queen Anne Road in Harwich are suggested. Jacek Kazimierz Sulanowski, Dateline Falmouth. Jacek Kazimierz Sulanowski of Falmouth died at Falmouth Hospital on October 18th. He was 80. 
born on July 8, 1943, in Kalis, Poland, to Elzbieta and Henrik Sulanowski, he emigrated to the United States in November 1948. Jacek attended Cass Technical and Pershing High Schools in Detroit and graduated in 1960. He was awarded a B.S. in Geology from Wayne State University in 1967, after which he was drafted and served in the 23rd Engineer Battalion of the Army Corps of Engineers for two years in Frankfurt and Hanau, Germany. Following an honorable discharge in 1969, Jacek enrolled in a master's program at Wayne State University. He married Margaret Matthews, also of Detroit, in June 1972. The newlyweds moved to Chicago that year when Jacek enrolled in a doctoral program at the University of Chicago. His research brought the couple to Falmouth, where he spent the remainder of his life. He successfully defended his thesis in 1978, after which he embarked on a 30-year career teaching geology at Bridgewater State University. For over 50 years, Jacek was an avid folk musician, amateur musicologist, and world traveler. He was a founding member of the Rum-Soaked Crooks, an all-male sea chanty singing group that toured extensively at folk music festivals across the U.S. and Europe. Highlights include performances at the Warsaw and Krakow Folk Music Festivals in 1994 and a month-long residency in 1990 aboard the schooner Ernestina as she revisited ports of call from Newfoundland to Bedford. Jacek was an active member of the Falmouth and New England musical community, serving at various points as the president of the Woods Hole Folk Music Society and a member of the New Bedford Harbor Sea Chanty Chorus, Morgan Rattler, Vineyard Swordfish, and the Solstice Singers. His friends will remember his humor, generous spirit, good cheer, magnificent mustache, and a love of learning and languages. He is survived by his loving wife, Margaret, his son, siblings, and many cousins, nieces, and nephews across the United States and Poland, and innumerable friends. A celebration of his life will be held in Woods Hole in the early days of 2024. Frederick Alden Frederick Freeman Alden, born February 23, 1933, died October 21, 2023. In every conceivable manner, the family is the link to our past and a bridge to our future. From his birth in Sagamore to William C. and Charlotte Alden, until his passing in Buzzards Bay, the tapestry of Frederick Freeman Alden's life was woven with integrity, devotion to family, laughter, and legacy. To many, he was simply Fred, a beacon of strength and steadfastness. To his cherished grandchildren and great-grandchildren, he was affectionately known as Pop. For 66 years, Helene K. Alden found a home in his embrace. Their journey painted the canvas with colors of joy and pride, producing four beautiful children. He was a cherished grandfather and great-grandfather. He was predeceased by his brother William and sisters Betty and Priscilla, and is survived by more siblings. A 1952 graduate of Bourne High School, Fred wore patriotism on his sleeve, serving during the Korean War, and continued his devotion to country through his commitment to the Army National Guard. 
His dedication and loyalty also found expression in a four-decade employment with suburban propane. Fred found solace in the warm embrace of Englewood, Florida winters. The golf course echoed his laughter, the fish attracted to his tune, and his devotion to many charities distinctly mirrored his generous spirit. Boston's sports anthems played in his heartbeats, from the roar of the Bruins and Red Sox to the cheers for the Patriots and Celtics. And amid these thrills, the quiet clink of cribbage cards equaled serenity. Fred positively influenced many daily, and as the leader of the Knights of Columbus, his commitment to community was proudly displayed, which also included the Buzzards Bay Call Fire Department and the American Legion. Above all, faith was his guide, and St. Margaret's Church became his spiritual compass. If asked, Fred would say his crowning achievement was his family. He was a boundless father, an adoring grandfather, a cherishing great-grandfather. Visitation will be held for Fred on November 1st from 10 a.m. to noon at Nickerson-Born Funeral Home in Bourne with a service in the funeral home at noon. Burial will take place at 1.15 p.m. at the Massachusetts National Cemetery in Bourne. As leaves fall and time moves, we ask in Fred's memory for kindnesses to be extended to the Bourne Fire Rescue Fund in Buzzards Bay, a charity that resonated with his spirit. In every heartbeat, every sunset, and every gentle breeze, Fred's essence will resonate, immortalized by love and memories. For further information and online condolences, please visit the website of Nickerson Bourne. Lawrence Lori W. Butler Lawrence W. Lori Butler, age 85 of Pocasset, died Tuesday, October 24th. Born to the late Francis Butler and Mary Dot Morrissey Butler on March 23, 1938, in Boston, Lori grew up in Revere and graduated from St. Mary's High School in Lynn, where he excelled in academics and baseball. He attended the Massachusetts Maritime Academy, graduating in 1958 with a degree in mechanical engineering. A standout pitcher on the baseball diamond and twice named to the Upper Cape League All-Star team, in 1957 and 58, he recorded a 6-2 record in 1957, leading MMA to the Upper Cape League Championship. He was inducted into the MMA Athletic Hall of Fame in 2003 and the Cape Cod Baseball League Born Braves Hall of Fame in 2005. An avid Born Braves fan in retirement, Lori was a fixture in his seat behind home plate at Doran Park. Upon graduating from MMA, Lori married his high school sweetheart and wife of 65 years, Janice Finley Butler. Commissioned an ensign in the U.S. Navy, he and Janice traveled the world with their children during his seagoing naval service, USS General George M. Randall and the USS Canberra, and service as a special agent with the Office of Naval Intelligence and Naval Investigative Service, now called the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, or NCIS, with assignments in Boston, Florida, Virginia, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, North Carolina, Rhode Island, California, and Bermuda. Lori, known as Joe Bud to family, is survived by his sister Dorothy and predeceased by his brother Captain Frank Butler, the U.S. Merchant Marine. He is predeceased by his son Matthew and survived by four children. 
eight grandchildren and three great-grandchildren and many nieces and nephews. In lieu of flowers, the family is requesting that donations be made in Lori's memory to the Parkinson's Foundation, the Massachusetts Maritime Academy Class of 58 Seabag Scholarship Fund, or the Born Braves baseball team. A visitation wake will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Monday, October 30th at the Nickerson Bourne Funeral Home in Bourne. A funeral mass will be at 10 a.m. Tuesday, October 31st at St. John the Evangelist Catholic Church on Shore Road in Pocasset, followed immediately by a committal burial service at the National Cemetery adjacent to Joint Base Cape Cod, Otis Air National Guard Base. Fond memories and expressions of sympathy may be shared at the Nickerson Board website for the Butler family. And we thank these three gentlemen for their service to our country. Phyllis W. Wyatt, Dateline Falmouth. Phyllis F. Wyatt of Falmouth passed away peacefully at home on Saturday, October 21st at the age of 92. Born at the family home in Wacoit on November 14, 1930, to Stanley and Eleanor Hazel Fisher. After an idyllic childhood in Wacoit and West Falmouth, where her father served in the fire department, Phyllis graduated valedictorian from Lawrence High School in 1947. Following graduation, she attended Tufts New England Medical School in Boston for two years to become a certified laboratory technician and worked for several years as a lab assistant at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. In addition to her, to her time at Huey, Phyllis worked as a medical receptionist for several physicians in Woods Hole, Quisset, and Falmouth. In 1950, Phyllis married Charles Brush Vale, but they divorced in 1975 after 25 years of marriage. Following her divorce, Phyllis remarried and moved to Florida, where she lived for the next 38 years, first in St. Petersburg, then in Siesta Key, and finally in Sarasota. Phyllis moved back to Falmouth in 2013 to be closer to family. She was so happy to be back home among family and friends, living first with her sister and then for the past two years at Atria Woodbriar in Falmouth. Phyllis was an avid traveler who loved exploring new countries and cultures. She traveled widely throughout the U.S. and the world, visiting every continent except Antarctica. She loved to entertain and was an enthusiastic supporter of the arts. She loved to read, cook, sew, knit, and was a passionate gardener. Devoted mother of Dora Lee and the late Stanley, adored grandmother of several and great-grandmother. She was predeceased by her husbands John, Chuck, and James. Services will be private. Remembrances may be made to Cape Cod Healthcare VNA of Cape Cod Hospice. The Ask Carolyn column today is headlined, Grandma Pushes Only Child Not to Stop at an Only Grandchild. Hi, Carolyn. I'm an only child, which was always my parents' plan. I grew up yearning for a sibling and sometimes whining about not having one and was always told that X, Y, and Z were the reasons money, my parents' emotional capacity, our family's overall health and mobility. I was around age 13 when I accepted it and stopped resenting them for it. Now I am the parent of an only child, almost four, 
and my mother hounds me almost daily about when I'm going to give her a sibling, because it would be so good for her. She is neurotically fixated on this, and it drives me up the wall. I can't work out whether she was lying to me about the benefits of being a one-and-done family when I grew up, or whether her attitude has just changed. Either way, I hate that she decided I didn't deserve the incredible gift of a sibling, but is more than happy to tell me I must give one to my child. Aside from telling her to back off, which I can do, do you have any thoughts on what this means and how I can handle it? Signed, Only Child. Dear Only Child, No thoughts that I have will be as useful as your mother's. But you haven't asked? It's such an obvious contradiction that I'd expect at least one of you to have mentioned it. The first time your mom ever lobbied for grandchild number two. So I'll start here. Do you have any thoughts on what it means that you're asking me instead? When you can try this or something like it. It's confusing to hear you push for a sibling when you gave me so many reasons you stopped after having me. Are you willing to talk about this? Unflinching but gentle is the balance you want. Because it's possible your mom wanted to have more children, even more than you wanted her to, but they couldn't, or their marriage couldn't, or they could, but your dad vetoed it, and they didn't want to dump this much reality on their lonely, inquisitive child. Or maybe the reasons she gave you were true. Every one of them is a valid reason to stop having children. Valid enough that I have another question for you. Any thoughts on why you still don't take your mom's reasons for an answer? Those benefits of being a one-and-done family seem to apply to their specific circumstances, money problems, emotional limitations, and health issues. If so, then her desperation now would actually make sense as Act 2, where Act 1 was either her private heartbreak or your public loneliness or both. So much sense you might not need to ask. Look at me having thoughts anyway. Here's one more. You have absolute standing to tell her to back off. She's so over the line that I'm surprised you didn't steer her back to her side of it immediately. But doing it now, amid so much history and so little communication, seems like a missed opportunity. Whatever happened back then, you're both still carrying the pain. I hope you'll summon the courage to speak of it plainly with her. And now for our Best Bets column, Sandwich Arts Alliance Reignites the British Invasion at Ukefest by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. Sounds of the British Invasion are coming to Sandwich, during the Sandwich Art Alliance's annual Uke Fest on October 29th at their new home, the historic Sandwich Town Hall and the Glasstown Stage. It's a bit of an oddball, but for Steve Gregory, owner of Score Music Studio, one of the ukulele's many strengths is its ability to play music from any genre, not just the Hawaiian luau tunes you may be used to. I think a lot of folks wouldn't expect the ukulele to be able to do some of the things that it can actually do, Gregory said. It's kind of exciting and inspiring, I think, for people to see the ukulele in the context of a pop song. Gregory began hosting uke fests at the Katuit Center for the Arts about 10 years ago when he became a ukulele teacher. Since then, he has brought his uke fest to Sandwich in partnership with the Sandwich Arts Alliance, and it's become a yearly staple since the Alliance began. 
That's why the Sandwich Arts Alliance is so cool, because there's opportunity for people to do this type of thing, he said. They say, hey, do you have any ideas for a cool concert? And you say, matter of fact to do about this, and we just put something together, and then here we are. However, for Gregory, ukulele playing entered his life thanks to his daughter Vanessa around 15 years ago. She stumbled across some YouTube videos by Jake Shimabukuro and thought it would be a fun instrument to get into. Gregory bought her a $50 ukulele for her birthday, and soon enough he was teaching a ukulele class. There was always one lying around the house, he said. I didn't really play it that much, but if you play the guitar, you can play the ukulele. So I'd be playing it from time to time. But when the Katuit Center for the Arts asked me to teach a class there, I said, this ukulele thing is really hot. We should do that. And they said, great, you start next week. Now, Gregory hosts two uke fests a year in Katuit and Sandwich while teaching and running his studio as well. At this year's Sandwich Uke Fest, audiences can expect to be surprised and delighted by the sounds of the four-stringed tiny guitar. My biggest hope when people come to see us play is that I hope people see people playing the ukulele, which is a very simple instrument to play, and they say, hey, I could do that. I like to sing. I want to do that, and that they might join the community, Gregory said. One of Gregory's classes, the Concert Ready Ukulele Band, and one of his bands, One Fred Away, Steve G's Utopian Ukulele Band, will accompany the Shining Sea Strummers at this year's Ukefest, playing tunes from some of Britain's greats like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Ukefest will take place from 2 to 4 p.m. on the Glastown stage at the Sandwich Arts Alliance and is presented by the Sandwich Arts Alliance, Score Music Studio, and the Glastown Cultural District. Tickets for Ukefest are $10 and can be purchased online at the website of the Sandwich Arts Alliance. Catch a performance of Something Old, Something New at the Marston's Mills Historical Society. The Marston's Mills Historical Society will perform an original play, Something Old, Something New, by Marston's Mills resident Sandra Bolton. The play, directed and written by Bolton, will star David Martin, Bolton, Sue Crocker, and Rick Presby. The event is free to attend. Showtime is 3 p.m. on October 28th at Liberty Hall on Pilot's Way in West Barnstable. Celebrate Howell O'Ween at Cape Cod Beer and the Brewster Dog Park. Two Howell O'Weens are happening on the Cape this weekend at the Brewster Dog Park and Cape Cod Beer. At the Brewster Dog Park, Howell O'Ween takes place 11 a.m., on October 28th. Dress your dogs up in their best Halloween costume for the chance to win a ribbon and bragging rights, or tail wagging rights. Judging will commence from 11 to 11.15 a.m. at both the big and small parks, and winners will be selected from each. Treats courtesy of Agway of Cape Cod will be available, and Friends of the Brewster Dog Park merchandise will be for sale. The Brewster Dog Park is located on Harwich Road in Brewster. The contest is free to attend and to participate in. At Cape Cod Beer, Howell O'Ween is from noon to 4 p.m. on October 29th. As always, the brews will be flowing, but the furry friends are the main stars of the party. Of course, there will be a costume contest for the best-dressed dog, along with some prizes and treats up for grabs. 
Live music and pet portraits from Zobie's Custom Creations will also take place. Cape Cod Beer's Howl Oween Potty is free to attend. Be sure to dress warm as the fun takes place in the beer garden. All furry friends must be on leashes for the event as well. Cape Cod Beers located on Finney's Lane in Hyannis. Bianca Del Rio takes the stage at Provincetown Town Hall. Bianca Del Rio, Season 6 champion of RuPaul's Drag Race, will grace the stage of Provincetown Town Hall during Spooky Bear Weekend on October 28th. Tickets for the show are available online at the Provincetown Art House website, ranging from $75 to $200. Showtime is 8.30 p.m. The Provincetown Food and Wine Festival begins November 2nd. The Provincetown Food and Wine Festival kicks off November 2nd, promising four days of delectable bites from the land and sea and savory sips from across the globe. This year's theme is local foods and global wines, with events happening up and downtown. Enjoy a series of tastings and dinners, plus a book signing with Chef Vincent Tropepe at East End Books and a gallery sip and stroll. Festivities begin on Thursday, November 2nd, with a Lucky Lips Oyster Farm pop-up at 3 p.m., and end on Sunday, November 5th, with the final last tea event at 4 p.m. at the Boat Slip. Most events are free to attend, however, tickets are required for the opening reception at the Gifford House, the Wine Dinner at Tin Pan Alley, and Liz's Harvest Cafe, the Grand Tasting at Town Hall, and the Crown and Anchor's Immersive Dining Experience, and Big Gay Boozy Brunch. Tickets for these events range from $50 to $185 and can be purchased online at the ptownfoodandwinefestival.com website. Registration is required to attend the gallery Sip and Stroll. Support local charities at the Brewster Baptist Church Holiday Fair. On November 4th, celebrate the season of giving with the Brewster Baptist Church at their annual holiday fair. Grab a few gifts, sweet treats, and more in support of four local charities. The Family Table Collaborative, Sharing Kindness, the Homeless Prevention Council, and the Cape Cod Foster Closet. The 19th Annual Brewster Baptist Church Holiday Fair will take place from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. November 4th at the Brewster Baptist Church on Main Street in Brewster. Rescuing Modern Homes on the Outer Cape by Frankie Rowley of the Cape Cod Times. On a gloomy Tuesday morning, the wooden cantilever decks and white concrete blocked beams of the Kugel Gips House blend in with the overcast tones of the day. Overlooking the northeast pond, the house is hidden in thick woods down a winding dirt road off Long Pond Road in Wellfleet. Built by architect Charlie Zender in 1970, it is one of four homes restored and rented by the Cape Cod Modern House Trust, a nonprofit organization on the Cape founded by Peter McMahon in 2007. The Kugel Gips House will be open to the public to tour during an open house from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. October 29th. Parking is on site and the event is free to attend. Visit ccmht.org for more information. As we wandered around, the gray house from outside followed us in through the large windows. The earth-toned furniture, including Cheska dining chairs by Marcel Brewer, a dining room table crafted by McMahon, and a Herman Miller Noguchi coffee table, 
and the dark-colored accent wall of the living room brought life to the white and wood-toned home. McMahon pointed out Zender's design quirks inside the home, like the misalignments of windows and walls and the window above the kitchen sink, a design element he came to know spending his summers on Wellfleet in a Zender house. I grew up in a Charlie Zender house, which is part of how I got into this whole thing, he said. The three-bed, two-bath house was built for Peter Kugel, former chair of the computer science department at Boston College, and then later sold to James Gipps, a computer scientist at Boston College, at the end of its lease. When McMahon acquired the house in 2007, it had been abandoned by humans for 11 years, but taken over by bats and raccoons. It was a real mess, but you could sort of see the potential of it, McMahon said. It was his first project after establishing the trust that same year, and he was up for a challenge. The painted latex roof had failed. Water filled the basement. Dead pine trees outside of the home threatened to fall on it. Plumbing and electrical issues topped off a long list of problems. Though most of the restoration was finished within a year, getting the house to a completed state would take years as new problems kept popping up, largely due to Zender's use of materials. It took a long time to get it to a truly habitable state, McMahon said. We've done a lot of improvements. He used materials in a way that was kind of really pushing them to the limit and sometimes to the point where they failed. Zender left his mark around the Outer Cape creating homes for clients who were professors, artists, and writers with a small budget to build a home. I found 53 houses by him on the Outer Cape, McMahon said. He was the most prolific of the modern architects. He used usual materials in unusual ways. So he did some really interesting houses for what would be considered ridiculously low budget nowadays. Yet, Zender never studied architecture, opting for engineering at the University of Virginia and sculpting at the Rhode Island School of Design. However, he grew to have an admiration for Frank Lloyd Wright, especially after meeting him during his time at the University of Virginia. He had a very strong affinity for Wright, and you can really see it in this house, McMahon said. It's got a lot of Frank Lloyd Wright aspects to it. The big overhangs, the cantilevers, the sort of projection out into the landscape, and the dematerializing of the corners. Even as you step inside, Wright's influence cannot be avoided, as the brick fireplace sits center in the house, one of Wright's signature design staples, according to McMahon. Now, the Kugel Gips House acts as a place for the trust programming and tours, a home for their artists and residents during their stays in Wellfleet, and one of four of the trust's weekly vacation rentals. They're small by today's standards, but very at one with their surroundings and with nature, McMahon said. They're very bold in as far as they can, how they can handle materials and spaces. They're very inspiring. It just shows that there are other ways to live than just a normal suburban house. And that's all I have time for. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.